We didn't finish the little section that we started two weeks ago, and I don't know if we'll even get through there today because um, I don't know. It just seemed like every time you look at something like this, there's a lot there. You don't see things the first time that you see the second time through, and I, it's a great little a great little section, verses 1 through 13, um, about partiality or showing respect to people. Now, of course, James uses the illustration of one coming into your meeting, into your assembly, and showing acts or deeds of partiality between those who come in. And he uses the illustration of rich and poor. And, of course, he brings out the fact of the nice clothes that the rich man has and the poor clothes that the poor man has. Or he called, King James, I think, calls it vile clothing, uh, vile raiment, shabby clothing. And really what he's, you know, that's so much on the surface of what we would normally think of here in terms of conduct. But really what James gets to, it seems to me, as you look at the words used here especially, is that he's getting to the fact that when you do something like that, it emanates from your heart. And it shows that you are making distinctions based on your heart condition. And he uses the same word as he uses over in chapter 1 about doubting. And so some commentators believe that when you do such things, you're showing doubtfulness about the faith. Why would they say that? Well, number one, because these people are brethren. He addresses them twice here in this, this, this little section. He starts off in verse 1, my brethren, and in verse 5, he says, hearken, my beloved brethren. He's speaking to those who had heard the gospel. You also remember that we gave evidence to show that the book of James was probably, and this is common amongst all commentators, that it was one of the earliest epistles and probably the earliest epistle written. And I think it was written earlier than most of them think so. Uh, I think it was written maybe three or f- no more than three or four years after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And so knowing that and knowing the content of the gospel that Jesus preached to his disciples concerning the coming of the Messiah and who he was and the kingdom, this was fresh on the minds of those whom James is writing to. This was not some new information that they had. When they received the gospel, they received the gospel in the same content that James did when he heard it from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, being his half-brother, he was in Uh, close proximity to the ministry of Jesus all during the time he was upon the earth. Sometimes he may have been with him personally, sometimes in the home, wherever. He heard the gospel. So, having said that then, 
in this illustration of showing partiality then, some feel that this is a case of doubting the faith because this was not a part of the gospel to show distinction between rich and poor. Jesus didn't preach it this way. And so when he comes to verse 5 then, he says there, hearken, my beloved brethren. In other words, he's just saying, listen up. You guys, if we can use a northern Indiana term, you guys. Oh, by the way, I hate to stop right in the middle of the message. Did you take that little New York Times, um, I don't know what you call it. It's a little, little quiz, I guess. It's not a quiz. You can't fail it. It's a little demo. Um, okay, I'll just tell you what it did. I can't think what you want to call it. But you, you went through and you answered these, these questions by the way in which you would say a certain word or an expression that you would use. And when you get all done, it'll tell you what area of the country you come from. So I did it, and it nailed it right on. It said Indianapolis and Fort Wayne. I said, okay, I'm just a little hour west of Fort Wayne, so it got me right. It did good job. <laughs> now, how, where that came from, I don't know. but <laughs> He's telling them, in essence here, this gospel that they heard did not contain the privilege of making distinctions between rich and poor when they come into your assembly. As a matter of fact, that's not to be a part of your life in any sense of the word, whether you're dealing with rich or poor, but in any other area. Deeds of partiality is the way it should be rendered in verse 1. It's plural. Acts of partiality. This is not to be a part of your life in any sense of the word. And so when he comes to verse 5, hearken, my beloved brethren... He says here, hath not God chosen the poor, and the King James says, of this world, but several render this as to the world, or to the world, rich in faith. So let's look at those phrases to see what he means here, because On the surface, it would appear that James is saying that God chose poor people, just in general terms. He chose poor people to be rich in faith. But I think from the context and from our understanding of what the content of the gospel is, he was talking about the 12 tribes and these that were scattered about. He's talking about the believers that he's writing to, and he's telling them, don't you know concerning you that God has chosen the poor as to the world, the cosmos, rich in faith? And then you'll notice that little word, in. You remember that's our little word, en? I've got a little picture coming back to me sometime soon, a piece of cheese with some mice on it. (laughs) And it tells you on there about the prepositions and the word in. And it means, and it shows you the mouse is inside the piece of cheese. 
Now, when Bob was sharing these with us in our Wednesday night Bible study, he just drew a little square on the board and put the word E-N there. The word in, in that sense then, means in the sphere or in the realm of. And so when he says rich in faith, without the article, he's simply saying rich in the realm of faith or in the sphere of faith. So to be poor to the world to be, is to be rich or have a wealth with respect to your faith. In other words, if you are in that sphere of faith, having received the gospel, just as Jesus proclaimed it and his disciples proclaimed it, then you're a wealthy person. And I think James is holding that up to these 12 tribes these believers that he's writing to, to show that when they received the gospel, they had to be poor in spirit. Just like Jesus preached it back in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's reminding them, remember that. So when a rich man or a poor man comes in, Don't you doubt your faith and quiver on your faith by jumping out of that sphere and start showing partiality. Because he says, if you do, then you come on down there to verse 9. He says, if you show respect to persons, you commit sin. You've done it. And then, he says, are convinced of the law. Now, every other translation would say you're convicted of the law. All that means is is you've been shown to be guilty of the law of showing partiality. And you're a transgressor. And then he goes on in verses 10 and 11 to give the illustration of that, how that works. He says, whosoever shall keep the whole law And yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you meditate on that one for just a little bit and think about that, standing before a judge and you're there on a charge of murder, you've killed somebody, and the judge is ready to pronounce judgment upon you, and you say, Wait a minute, Your Honor, hold on here. I've never committed adultery one time in my whole life. I'm as pure as the driven snow. You can't accuse me or nail me one iota on on a charge of adultery. And you would think, well, that's pretty much nonsense. That has nothing to do with it. And that's James's point. If you commit a transgression against any part of the Torah or the law, then you're guilty of the whole thing. It doesn't matter. The law operates as a unit. And the prevailing principle over the law 
even in the Old Testament, was thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And isn't that what James just said? He says in verse 8, If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you do the opposite and show respect of persons, then you commit a transgression. And so this, we find then, is our second test of our faith that James is presenting in this book, showing partiality. And so then he admonishes, admonishes them in verse 12, So speak ye and so do. Well, make sure what you say, so speak ye, lines up with so do ye. Your words and your actions need to match each other. As they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now I want to say that that little expression, shall be judged, means it's an absolute certainty that you're going to be judged by that law. But you know what? This word here does not mean to bring brought under condemnation of the law like we normally think because we think, wow, to be brought under the law because of our transgression is to be condemned. But the, but the fact of the warning of what's to come is the assessment under the law of liberty that's to take place. You're going to be judged in that sense of the word. How you lived out your life under this law of liberty. Now, the law of liberty. There's no article there in Greek. That tells us, again, why it's not a condemnation of judgment. Because he's judging us based on the character of the law. It indicates to us that we're going to be assessed how we've lived our life based on the character of the law. How did we conform to it? And I love verse 13. And then he says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. I really, when I first grabbed a hold of the meaning of that verse several years ago, I really just almost jumped up and down in my heart, you know, because I thought, wow, you got to show mercy now in this life if we want God to show mercy to us when we come under this assessment, under this judgment that's yet to come. And that was a particular and peculiar thing of, of, of even of kings to do such things, but even so more of God 
who delights in such things. If you remember, and turn back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, you may remember going through the Sermon on the Mount, this was one of the things that the Lord Jesus brought out and he, when he was teaching his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 7. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now that was a life changer for me. Showing mercy meant to me that I could be a recipient of mercy. And so to have that as a practice, as a part of the character of your life, from that point on, means that I could stand before the Lord and know that though I may have transgressed at some point, and though I may be guilty, I have the prospect that he may show me mercy in that day. Well, I tell you what, I would much rather have mercy than be one of those that says, the law says, and they pound your fist, and you want to follow the letter of the law, then that's the kind of judgment you're going to get. From the Lord. He's going to follow the letter of the law with you. And I really don't think you want that. I know I don't. I much prefer mercy. If you also would turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 22 for a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 22. <coughs> In this chapter... David is uh, singing a hymn. Verse 1 says, David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. So this was David's rejoicing before the Lord because God had delivered him. And if you look at verse 26, you'll notice David acknowledges this, the same very principle that we're talking about. He says, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. He will show mercy to the merciful. And we want that. We want to be recipients of the Lord's mercy. We don't want to be as those who are doubting in our faith. As these in this assembly, in this meeting, and of course there were several of these. James is writing to the 12 tribes uh, you know, that are scattered around the uh, area around Israel. So he wasn't talking about just one in particular. He was talking about an attitude and a practice that he didn't just assume was happening, but knew about and knew that this thing had actually happened. And so when old Goldfinger came in 
this guy with the many gold rings on his finger and someone regarded the face of that person and had respect to him and said, here, here's a place of honor. Why don't you go over here and sit? And then the poor guy comes in and he says, you sit over there or sit under my footstool. And you readily know it was a place of dishonor. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, he says, when you do that, you have despised, you have dishonored, or you have treated shamefully <coughs> the poor. That's not the way to we're, we're to conduct ourselves. Whether it's in the assembly, at church, or in any other area of our life as a believer. Because that is not... What James is getting to here and pointing at is he's saying, that's not the way you receive the gospel. You didn't get it this way. Don't revert back to doing doing such things. The last thing I want to mention, and I'm trying to quit early today so we can make our our little journey. Um, The last thing I want to mention here is in verse 5 at the end of that verse. You'll notice there. He says, which he has promised to them that love him. This is another reason I believe that he's talking about those in the congregation. They are the only ones who could have love for the Lord. And you'll notice then, and I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but back in chapter 1 and verse 12, where it says, blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he is tried or approved, he shall receive the crown of the life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And you'll notice that this is uh, the prerequisite for the inheritance as well as receiving the crown of life, those that love him. And that tells us then that receiving the crown of life And inheriting the kingdom are really the same thing. They are different expressions talking about that which is to happen in the future. And so when we are judged by this law of liberty, when we are brought to assessment, as it were, and very well, this could mean the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, that's where the ultimate assessment is taking place or will take place. That those things will be brought out. And our faith then, James says, is tested when these kinds of things happen. And you're tempted to show partiality. And he just simply says, don't do it. Now I realize sometimes that can be hard to do. We are so geared and so conditioned in our society, in our culture, we do it without a moment's thought. We see certain people in a crowd. We're introduced to certain people in a, in a certain setting, and you, you naturally gravitate to certain people based on how they're dressed, the way they look, how they smell, you know, and, and lots of other factors that enter in. But when it comes to the gospel... Both James and Jesus said, don't do that. It's wrong. 
and you commit sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way because when we show mercy, we have the prospect of him showing us mercy in that coming day. And I'm counting on that. That means I've got to be practicing. If I'm counting on it, then that means I've got to be practicing myself right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, for all that you've done for us and how you've blessed us. You've cared for our needs. You've lifted us up. You've made us of one mind and one spirit. I pray that we'll grow in that oneness here in this assembly. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.